0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes four. <coughs> we'll be uh, looking at this entire chapter, Lord willing. <coughs> we'll be in that. Kids, in the Bibles that we have given you are on the back table. That is on page four uh, five hundred and fifty five. Five hundred and fifty five. Things are not as they should be. I don't think you need me to tell you this. I think you've probably figured that all out on your own. I think sometimes we need to recalibrate our understanding so that we may truly understand how far things have gotten out of whack. In our passage today in Ecclesiastes 4, the preacher subtly points out some areas in which life has gone off the rails. But if we are to understand this we need to go back to the beginning which is why we read Genesis 2 in our Old Testament reading today. In Genesis 2:15 the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. In 2:18 the Lord God said it's not good that the man should be alone i will make him a helper fit for him. Among all of creation, there was not a helper fit for him, he says in 20 into 20. So God created woman. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united. Hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. In the chapter before in 127, God uh, uh, Moses says that God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. So we have this baseline of work from the very beginning of time, right? And this is how we reflect God's character. As we're vice regents, we're managers over all creation. And it's not just one person doing this, it's two we need the help to do what God has commanded us and called us to do. And so God has graciously given us the gift of companionship. But after the fall of Genesis 3, there's difficulty in relationship, hinted, uh, relationships hinted out in 316, where it says, your desire, woman, shall be against your husband and he shall rule over you. And he goes on to tell them that the toil will be hard and it will be futile and you will return to the ground from which you were created. And so we look back at this and our minds immediately go to the marriage relationship. But what began in marriage of the marriage of our first parents was passed on to all relationships in subsequent generations. The reason for that, kids, is because we've been we've all rebelled against God, every single one of us in in, and not seeking to live our lives according to his ways. But we've decided to live according to our ways. And consequently, man isn't in agreement with one another about what way is right. So we make a mess of society and we make a mess of the world as we each wrestle for control in our own little part of his creation. Instead of following God our king, we place little plastic crowns on ourselves and we pretend to be king and we want to decide what's right. So in Genesis 2, Adam viewed Eve as a helper, one with him in flesh, cleaving to one another. Instead of thinking about me, Adam is thinking about we. Living a vulnerable, humble, loyal life with one another. But after the fall of Genesis 3, immediately blame sets in. And in the next chapter, we see the murder of a brother out of jealousy. A man using other women for his pleasure. And delighting in how tough he is and the power that he has over others. And this is the trajectory of the whole Bible. I think of Moses being opposed by his own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam. Never mind all of Israel basically saying, you're not the boss of us. I think of Israel seeing all the other nations that Israel was supposed to subdue as an act of of the garden, to fill the earth and subdue it. And instead, what happens? Israel clamors for their own king. We want a king like everybody else has got. We don't want you. We can't see you. We want somebody that we can see, somebody that we can trust. And God tells Samuel, they didn't reject you. They rejected me. Think of all the nasty fights and power plays and schemes that came about in David's reign, especially at the end of David's reign with people Propping up the old senile king and using him for their own benefit. Even during the days of Jesus' ministry. Think about the 72 disciples that Jesus sent out in Luke 10. They, sent, they were sent out how, much, how? Two by two. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And don't worry, I'll, pro- I'll provide for you. I'll care for you. And they come back and they're amazed and they say even the demons were subject to us in your name. But yet by Luke 22, the disciples are in dispute among one another about who is the greatest. And Jesus warns them about using their authority to lord it over others. This trajectory continues to this day. We have come to blindly accept it in life. And we even think that it's healthy and that it's a good motivating tool and it strives us to be better. But this is the issue that the preacher tackles today to call our attention to how the priorities of life have flipped. He's going to look at four areas of life to show us how things are not right in this world. And these will serve as the points of our sermon. Oppression, rivalry, isolation, and pride so let's read chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 this is god's word again i saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them on the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than boast, both is he who has not yet been, born, been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and the striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business." Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity And striving after wind. This is God's word. So oppression. We see oppression in verses 1 through 3. We ought to define oppression before we begin. And so I'm synthesizing a couple of commentators. And then adding to it myself. So don't worry about writing this definition down. Just Just listen to it with me. Oppression is the accumulation of profit or power over other people without regard for nature, needs, and rights of those people. The object of the oppression can be a person, it can be their property, or it can be even their good name. The oppressor can be any number of people, rulers, masters, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, landlords, bosses, governmental authorities, friends, siblings, teachers, pastors, leaders of any kind, or anyone you interact with on social media. And this power can be officially granted or it can be usurped or just assumed. I'd like for us to notice something right off the bat. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. There are many more than any of us realize there's much more oppression than we are aware of. We all deal with oppression in some form or fashion, but some may be more familiar with it than others. Even now, as we consider this verse and as I speak, our minds may go to specific types of oppressions. And you may think, "Now oh, here we go. We're getting ready to settle in for a thorny discussion on race or on politics. But if that thought has crossed your mind, even while I'm speaking, this proves the point that I'm about to make. Look at at this in verse 1. Behold the tears of the oppressed. Behold the tears of the oppressed. Oppression is an incredibly discouraging, deflating, defeating thing to deal with. To feel like you have no hope wherever you turn. And everywhere you turn is some reminder that things are not as they should be. And there is someone with some assumed superiority over you. And that feeling can be overwhelming. But also look in verse 1 that we see the oppressor has a power that seems insurmountable. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. that You can't do anything about it but also see that there is something that is almost as bad as the oppression itself. And that is there is no one to comfort them. How can this happen? I think sometimes we fail as friends or brothers or sisters to really get to know people who are different than us because we're afraid that we're going to find out that ultimately we are going to disagree with each other about solutions are causes of oppression. But the tragedy here is that they don't have anyone to comfort them. They don't have anyone to listen to them. The Hebrew word for comfort is to be sorry or to console or to be moved to pity, to have compassion, to seek to ease or to suffer with. So because we fear that we may not be able to remedy the situation, or we disagree about the remedy for oppression, we stop short of even offering comfort. But I know that you would agree with me that if someone in our church, or in the in your family, or in a neighbor in our neighborhood is hurting and suffering discouragement, we would want to know that, and we would want to encourage them, and at the very least, we could comfort them. But oppression is most often revealed or experienced at a personal level. We don't have to solve or address global situations or societal issues. We weep with those who weep and we stand with them when given the opportunity. Oppression and lack of comfort is so bad and so discouraging that the preacher says that the dead are better off than the living. Because we still have to deal with it and better than both are the ones that have never been born. Why is it so bad? I think it's so bad because it causes us to doubt God's existence. And if it doesn't cause us to doubt God's existence, then it shows us that He's not a good or not a powerful God. I'm reminded of a story I heard several years ago about a um uh, a man named Simon Wiesenthal who founded an organization that went and hunted down and prosecuted um, uh, Nazi war criminals. And he was asked for the motivation of his organization's work. And he had a lot of motivation for his organization's work because the Nazis killed 89 members of his and his wife's Jewish families. But one experience that stood out to him, served as his motivation that he talked about. As a child, as a young man, he was a, uh, a prisoner in a Nazi death camp. And there were several prisoners busting rocks there. And two Nazi uh, uh, officers came up in a car and they nonchalantly grabbed two Jews, stuck them back to back, tied them together. And the Nazi pulled his pistol out and shot, the, shot one of the Jews through the front of his head. And it came out. Um, The other man's head and the officer said, see, I told you we've been wasting 50% of our bullets and they died laughing and just left. And Sidney Wiesenthal, when he saw that, he said, God is on leave. Oppression without comfort blinds us from the true state of things and it blinds us from God's sovereignty over things. The experience of oppression and the lack of comfort in that oppression can lead someone, even the most faithful among us, to think that God is on leave. Living in a messed up world is bad enough. But imagine thinking that there is no God or he doesn't care or isn't powerful enough to do something about it. That's why it's better to never have been born into experience than to experience that. Now the world's approach to oppression or at least contemporary culture's approach to oppression is to counter that oppression by devising your own source of oppression, your own method of oppression because comfort's useless. So the solution to responding to oppressive power is to fight power with a different power, whether that be political or social, and give the oppressor a taste of their own medicine. But Romans 12 tells us that we should repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The preacher said last week in in Ecclesiastes 3.17 that God will judge the righteous and the wicked And there is a time for every work to be judged. Nothing will be lost. Nothing will be forgotten. Asaph, the psalmist, says in Psalm 73 that uh, he was brought to despair because of observing and suffering oppression and seemingly no one cared about it. But Asaph says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. We help our hurting brothers and sisters process these things while comforting them. But it's not just a therapeutic exercise because if we look down at 4.12 in our text, we see that we can also stand with those against an oppressor. We can help them, may even be able to help them prevail in some of their personal oppressions. So at every turn, we see oppression but God graciously gives us one another to provide comfort both as an emotional and a physical blessing in this life of vanity. The second sign that the preacher directs our eyes to that shows us that things are not right when this world is rivalry among mankind. Look at verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So the toil and skill and work that were God's gifts to his image bearers uh, um, um, so that we may reflect his character to creation have been co-opted by man as a tool to use against his neighbor in envy. To use against his neighbor in rivalry. Mankind finds themselves in a competition against their neighbor. It may be an actual neighbor. It may be a perceived neighbor. But we see that someone has something and we want it. We won't be satisfied until we get what they have. So what drives toil and achievement? Envy. William Brown says, envy inspires competition and thus twists the noble sense of vocation into an exercise in rivalry, into an upward and onward quest in the pursuit of dominance. We all deal with this. Kids, you deal with this. It will drive you in ways that you can never imagine. We try to outdo each other, even in... Providing for our families. If a neighbor gets something and it looks like I'm not providing for my family the way my neighbor is, and so I want it too. Or if you go to an event or you go to a famous place, you see people taking selfies and then they post them online. Why do they do that? Rivalry. Show you, hey, I'm here. I've been here too. Look at me. The preacher says this is vanity. It's striving after the wind. It's trying to bottle the wind. It's futile. You can't do it. There's always someone more flush with cash than you. There's always someone smarter. There's always a better school. There's always someone faster. There's always something strong, someone stronger. There's always a more stylish person. There's always a better meal. There's always a greater job. It goes on and on and on. In verse five, we see that some attempt to fight this rivalry by just leaving the rat race altogether. Problem solved. If I can't work without envying my neighbor, then I just won't work. But working, as we've already seen, is how we mirror God's image. So if we think, "Yeah, but if I work, I'm just going to, fail, I'm just going to fall into this trap of sin of envy and rivalry," so it's better that I just fold my hands and do nothing. But the preacher says that the one who does this devours himself. He's wasting away. Paul tells us in Second Thessalonians 3 that he who does not work should not eat. God intends for us to work. So it's God's design for us to wrestle with this tension. To wrestle with this tension of working hard for the glory of God while fighting envy and rivalry and being aware of it. It's ever-present. In verse 6, we have this proverb, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. It's interesting that the preacher doesn't say, Better is one handful of toil than two hands full of toil. He doesn't say that. He says, Better a one handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. If you're going to prioritize life, Grab and hold on to a handful of quietness. Make sure you get the quietness first. Guard quietness. Learn to be content with less rather than striving for two handfuls. Peace in life doesn't come with more. Peace in life comes with prioritizing peace. Proverbs 15, 16, We could. I mean, there's tons of them. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 16, 18, betters a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. 1 Timothy 6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But quietness and simplicity in life is only worthwhile if done with close friends. We've seen uh, a way that some try to combat this Rivalry and envy just by retreating from work. But now our focus turns to another way to combat envy and rivalry. That is our next sign that is not all, that next sign that not is all right under the sun. And that is isolation. We sometimes combat envy and rivalry with isolation. Isolation is our third point. In verses 7 through 12. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. If I'm not committed to anyone or I'm not responsible to anyone, what have I got to lose by just hard charging in life and just Getting two hands full of toil. I'm not hurting anyone. So what's the problem? The preacher says the problem is you're hurting yourself in that instance. For you're unchecked in your pursuits. We've already seen in earlier chapters that we cannot find fulfillment in wine. We can't find it in amusement. We can't find it in possessions or treasures or even in wisdom. So what gain are you pursuing in your toil? Any enjoyment that those things provide in the moment only comes about by sharing them with others. But if you have no one to share them with, you have nothing that will slow you down in your vain pursuit. You have no one in life that causes you to say, wait a second, why am I working so hard? I don't have anyone to share this with. What's the purpose? What am I counting on? This is what Jesus is getting at in the parable of the rich fool and Luke chapter 12, where he says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now we referred to this passage a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about um, uh, leaving a legacy and thinking about, oh, well, we're leaving these things for future generations. But we've, we talked about then how we'll be forgotten just like good old George H. Herman was forgotten. But there's another aspect to this. in the rich fool is speaking to himself. He doesn't have anyone to talk to. He's speaking to himself. Soul, relax. Enjoy yourself. He doesn't have anyone else. He's trying to find joy in his life of stuff. But Jesus says at the introduction to that passage in in, in verse 15, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. As we saw in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, we're relational creatures. We're meant to be together. This doesn't mean that you have to get married or it doesn't mean that you're any less of a person if you aren't. But we all need deep friendships. We need people we are obligated to and people we depend upon. The question isn't who are you going to leave your inheritance to? The question is who are you going to enjoy your inheritance with? Not only do friends add to the fullness of life, but they give us perspective on the lives that we live. You may think, well, I don't need friends. They're just going to slow me down. They're going to take my eyes off the prize. They're going to keep me from achieving what I want to do. But what if God's purpose in friendship is to slow you down? Where are you going to get that? Do you pursue meaningful relationships in life? as much as you pursue wealth and success. The preacher says that you'll find more enjoyment in the former than the latter. Yes, but John, relationships in the church are hard. You set, yourself, you set your mind to difficult tasks every single day in the workplace or in anything that you're endeavoring to do. Why do you set your mind to the why don't you set your mind to the difficult task of fostering and nurturing relationships in the church? We're made for relationship. We aren't playing a role in a play. These relationships have value. We find fulfillment in life in relationships, in giving of oneself and enjoying life together. And it provides perspective and checks On our soul so that that we will find nowhere else. In verses 9 through 12, the preacher gives us an advertisement for friendship. Two are better than one because you get more done together and you enjoy life more than you do apart. And if you fall down, if you fail, you got someone, or if you get stuck, you need a friend that can be there to help pick you up. Or two of you can even be in need together and meet each other's needs. If you're both cold, you get together and you combine your coldness and you keep warm. And in verse 12, which we've already referenced this verse when talking about oppression, but not only will you be able to comfort a friend in oppression, but you may be able to help them stand against it. But how does this apply to us? We don't have many folks falling into holes and needing to keep warm at night like they did in the ancient Near East. But we face spiritual danger every single day. We face temptations of the pride of life and the desires of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. And the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to to devour. We need friends who see what we don't see, who can speak truth to us, who can ask hard questions, we can help us keep perspective. At the end of verse twelve, the preacher owns a mysterious uh, uh, adds a mysterious other strand to this cord. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. He's been talking about two strands, and now he talks about three. Where does this third one come from? Now there aren't many commentators out there that say that the that the preacher here is seeing Jesus in this cord. He's not saying that he's not um, uh, pronouncing uh, or, or play, suggesting that Jesus is this, uh, even though we often refer to this passage at weddings. But basically, the preacher's saying, saying, if you got two good friends, three. If you if you got one good friend, then two's better because then a cord of three strands is a whole lot stronger than a cord of two strands. Get as many good friends as you can under in life under the sun, in life apart from God. You're going to need them. Which leads to our last sign that things are not right in this world, and that is the presence of pride there in verses 13 through 16. Now, candidly, this is a messy text. And there are a lot of pronouns here that it's difficult to find the referent to. So... As many commentaries as you read, you're going to have as many different opinions as to what is being said here. But <clears throat> reading a bunch of folks and thinking through these verses this week, this is what I think is going on and talk, Kyle and I have talked about it. In verse in chapter 2, verse 12, we see that wisdom is better than folly. No matter what happens, no matter how wise one is, you're, it's not really going to matter in the end, but Wisdom is better than folly, and I think we see that that um, that sense here in these three verses. The tragedy here is that we see this king who's getting old, and he's become foolish in his old age because he no longer takes advice from others. We often think that experience equals wisdom, and so that you get to a point, old and old, and, old at old age where. You really have nothing left to learn and you certainly, you don't aren't going to learn anything from some young whippersnapper. And so one of the reasons that we aspire to a certain level of success in life is so that we won't have to take advice from anyone anymore. You see all the problems in the company and man, if I get to that C-suite, I'm going to change things and I'm going to really set it right here. You don't have to take advice. You can do what you think it needs to be done but we are never in a place where we can't learn from other people. Even this king, this king may have been an exceptional story who rose, verse 14, who rose from the prison to the throne. He he was poor himself. But you can never be in a place where you can't learn from other people. Pride is ever present. It can show up late in life. When you're past your prime. Prime can be pride can be found in the in the person who has endured hardship all their life and who still struggles day by day. Pride isn't reserved for the person who's made it. But if we're keeping score in our text, if we're looking for who's better off, the poor wise youth is far better off than. And in a safer spot than the old foolish king who didn't take advice. And one day that poor wise youth even rose to the throne. And he ruled over all the land that he was once an insignificant part of. And there was no end to all the people who were subject to him. But lest this young king take pride in his position. He too will be forgotten. No one will ever remember him. No one will rejoice in him. Once he's in the box, they'll move on to the next one. Don't be prideful. Seek advice, seek counsel. Fame is fleeting. Even ruling the kingdom is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, I think we'll admit that we see these symptoms of a sick world and we see them at every turn in our lives. We see oppression. We see a failure to comfort. We see envy. We see covetousness. We see isolation. We see self-sufficiency. We see pride. It's all around us, and we probably have even agree that would even agree that we've heard sensible, sound advice today, and he's given us great things to think about: comforting those who are hurting, loving your neighbor instead of envying him, and pursuing close friendships in life, fighting pride. But every one of these signs is a sign, uh, uh, these signs of that things are not as they should be are a result of the fall. And therefore they are true of all mankind. And these ways the preacher has given us to combat the evils in the world are unachievable for the man, for the normal individual. It's interesting that. God is not mentioned once in this chapter, not once. Ignore the fact for a second that it's a chapter in the Bible, but it makes sense that God wouldn't be mentioned because we're talking about life under the sun, life apart from God. People go about their days and months and years seeking to find that secret combination to this life that will provide them fulfillment, that will provide them pleasure, meaning, and eternality. And the preacher is constantly telling his fellow seekers, you won't find it down that path. Keep looking. It's not there. You won't find the trophy there. I've been there. It's not going to work. Over and over again, he says, it's fleeting. You may have found what you're looking for once and it may have satisfied you a day, but it won't be there tomorrow. And instead, the approach he calls them to is so simple that we can see the wisdom in it. This is the way to survive and live in this life under the sun. But without even mentioning it, without even mentioning God or Christ or the church, the preacher is calling his fellow seekers to the Christian life. As we were in our New Testament reading this morning, we Christians know oppression and we know comfort. We've been comforted by God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. We're not surprised by affliction. We're not surprised by oppression because Jesus Christ, God, who came down into this life to live in this life under the sun, was oppressed and suffered severe injustice and death for us because of our sin. Jesus told us, he told his disciples, man, they hated me. They're going to hate you. And he prepared us for this suffering and for the oppression of the world. And he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And he comforts us in our affliction so that we may in turn comfort our brothers and sisters who are afflicted and suffering oppression and suffering discouragement. He calls us to patiently endure. He calls us to confidently know that just as we share in his suffering, we will also most assuredly one day share in his comfort as well. As a church, let's dig in and let's do the hard work of knowing one another and comforting our brothers and sisters. We've seen and can attest that envy is part of life. But Christians are called to fight against that envy, fight against that rivalry, and actually run in the other direction. Romans 12:15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We're to delight in one another's blessings, we're to thank God along with our sisters' good fortune. We're to confess those covetous desires and fight them and find joy in other people's happiness we're surprisingly called to produce unity even around this approach. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The Christian is even called to work, not out of envy for their neighbor, but they're called to work for their neighbor. Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And why does he say that? So that you won't be a burden to someone else? No. He says so that he may have something to share with those in need. So why are you supposed to work so you have something to share, something to give away to others? It's calling us back to the garden. This unity and this working together and caring for one another. Cleaving to one another. We're called to fight pride because we know its horrible effects. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, we could say all that is under the sun, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. We have seen that pride is so pervasive that it seems like an essential characteristic of man. But John here warns us that this wasn't programmed into us by the Father. We learned this from the world. Jesus tells us in Mark 7 that pride is a characteristic that the world holds out as admirable, as something to be desired. We have parades through every corner of this nation celebrating pride as its theme. And yet Jesus tells us these are evil things that come from within. They actually defile a person. Paul tells us in Romans 12 for by the grace given to me, I say everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And To help us soberly think about ourselves, we seek friendships with one another because we have experienced the truth that two are better than one. And they have a good reward for their toil. The one and others of the Bible are all about this. Love one another, serve one another, submit to one another, care for one another, speak truth to one another, pray for one another, outdo one another, not in toil, but to outdo one another in showing honor for one another. And these friendships are developed this way that are developed this way, are stronger than the acquaintances we have in the world because they're not built on mutual admiration. They aren't built on, hey, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. No, they're built on the commands and the enablement of Christ with Christ himself as our example. The world doesn't have a category for loving the unlovable. But we do because Christ loved us when we were unlovable. He first loved us when we were enemies of God and hostile to God. He loved us in the ultimate way, leaving heaven and living perfectly on this earth and dying the death that we deserve for our rebellion against God. And so Jesus tells us that if you seek relationships with your brothers and sisters in be in this way, I'll be with you. Where there are two or three gathered in my name, I am there also. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. I say all this because I want you to see something very important here. We have heard from the wisest man in the world how to live a good life. He's tried it all, he's tried all that life under the sun has to offer, and he's found it wanting. And he calls his reader to seek true fulfillment. To to seek uh, true fulfillment As we've read about today And the secret to a fulfilled life In this world apart from God Is ironically a life That only God can give We're uniquely called and equipped To live such a life This is what fulfillment In life looks like This is the good life But the preacher is also Quick to point out As fulfilling as this good life is It's not that good. It's fleeting. Don't be discouraged when you find it fleeting. It's okay because you were created for something more. God has put eternity in the hearts of man and you're right to want it. So look upward and set your hearts and your minds there. Brothers and sisters, this is an important task that we've been given because as we live this way, we're pointing everyone under the sun to the creator of all things and showing them that there is a loving, caring, sustaining, all-powerful god. This is an important task. And as I said, we're not playing a role of a, a role in a school play. This is important. We need this in our life. We need unity and love for one another. John 17, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. When Christians seek the good life here, the good life that the preacher commends, we are showing the world that the father sent the son to live life under the sun. And and we further show that the God of the universe loves them too so that they may have the hope of eternal life that will never, ever disappoint. This is the good toil that you've been called to. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Your ability to show us the futility of this life. But we thank you, Lord, for your word that whispers to us. We pray, Lord, that it would whisper to ears today. There's more. You're right to pursue this. You're right to think that life is not fulfilling, but find it in Christ. Jesus Christ, you are our all-satisfying treasure And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts and our minds and our desires with you. Lord God, we pray that you would be pleased by our thoughts and our prayers on this text. We pray that we would think about it through the week and encourage one another with what we have heard. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of the relationships that you've granted us here. And we pray that we would nurture those for your glory and our good.